Hello again, and welcome to the June episode of our special board dialogue feature to our regular Governing Health podcast series. I'm your host, Michael Peregrine. We're glad to have you with us. Well, it's summer and healthcare directors are filled with promise, optimism, and expectation. The country's reopening and hospitals and health systems are returning to normal. But those directors are also returning to a very full agenda, one that includes more than a few unique challenges and big picture strategic, competitive, and cultural concerns. And with those concerns come more than a little bit of frustration. What's just happened? How did we get through it? What's waiting for us on the boardroom table that's new and different and unexpected? What's the future look for us? And how are we positioned to address it? And that's why we have these special dialogue features with Ken Kaufman to provide our clients with the perspective of the industry's top expert on healthcare strategy on these and other issues. For more than 40 years, Ken Kaufman has been one of the leading thinkers on healthcare strategy and finance. He's the chair of Kaufman Hall, a management consulting firm that he founded in 1985. Ken, we're just always glad to have this special exclusive chance to talk with you. And this month, there's just so much to discuss. I mean, it really was tough to come up with all these questions and, and, and pick and choose. So I want to get your take on, on what we thought were some of the more intriguing issues to board members. And one was something that you talked about in your excellent Kaufman Hall blog. Uh, that's an article in the Times that talked about the mood of the country as languishing. Uh, not the malaise thing of Jimmy Carter, but languishing. Would, would you talk about that a little bit, what it means, and if you think that's true for healthcare organizations? Absolutely, Michael, and thanks again for the invitation. It's it's always so good to be here. I look forward to these very much. As do I. So that New York Times article, really, uh, it hit a nerve for sure, because if you look, it's just been getting quoted and, and recited, and it's one of those things that that people read and say, wow, I never thought about that, but but now that I think about it, it's accurate. And the author of the article said that that it was clear that 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 much of the country was was having, you know, sort of, you know, mental health issues of a sort. Uh, but it wasn't really depression, the author said. You had to find sort of another word as to to what was impacting our society as a whole, he called it languishing. And the definition of languishing was the collective fog which we have endured, which includes trouble concentrating, trouble staying motivated, trouble getting excited about the future. And he further pointed out that languishing isn't burnout and it's not depression. Instead, it's sort of a sense of stagnation, a sense of just getting by. And after I read that article, I said, wow, you know, it's interesting. Individuals languish, but not only do individuals languish, but organizations languish too. And it seemed to me that as I assessed many of the healthcare organizations that I talked to and, and, and work with and, and all that they've been through over the last 16 months, and, and, and I know the word unprecedented has become incredibly trite, but they've been through every unprecedented uh, 
pandemic issue you can possibly list or possibly have expected. And as a result of that, it seems that many of those organizations, both in from their management perspective, their board, and as an organization as a whole, are languishing. And, and so the organizations are not are not depressed from a mental health point of view, but they do there is a sense of stagnation. There is a sense of, of not moving forward anymore and a sense of that you're doing well if you can just get by. And, and obviously, that, that's a, a pretty significant issue because as we come out of the pandemic, which, which I think we have a fair chance of doing now, it'll be very hard to be a competitive healthcare organization in America if you are languishing and if your best strategic effort is just getting by. So when I when I thought about that, I said, well, you know, in order to shed languish and get back to, you know, feeling good about yourself as a provider in your community or in a larger geographic area, there's probably a few tactics that you need to employ in order to, you know, in order to get back to feeling yourself as an organization. And 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 I came up with three. So the first was that that organizations had to immediately recalibrate their strategic plan. You had to assume that COVID has has basically disrupted any strategic plan that a healthcare organization had before COVID is probably not terribly relevant right now in a whole lot of different ways. And so it's important for the board and the CEO, you know, to really get their act together and say, the first thing we want to do is revisit that strategic plan, see how broken that plan is, uh, and how can we gain, regain control of everything that the board and management team needs to know right now? And some of the questions are, what does the marketplace look like? How disrupted is your local demand for services? Is your clinical delivery system till, still intact? Has your traditional competition changed? Has your organization's place within your competitive market changed? And then there are questions that go on and on beyond that. And so, you know, it's it's just really important, I think, for the CEO to say to the board, this needs to be done. We're going to do this. We're either going to bring in a consultant to help or we're going to do it ourselves, but we're going to come back to you with a report on where we thought the strategic plan was uh, pre-pandemic and where we think it is post-pandemic. The second issue is reassessing your organization's financial integrity. And this is really uh, kind of interesting. There, there seems to be three kinds of organizations in the hospital world right now. There's the, hosp- there's the, the, the hospital organizations that are in really pretty difficult financial condition. Um, and as one hospital executive said recently, um, her hospital was in weak financial condition going into COVID, and her hospital is now in worse financial condition coming out of COVID. And she is not the only hospital executive who is going to have to face that problem. The second is those hospital organizations who are not sure what their financial condition is, and they need to get down to doing the analysis to figure that out, because because understanding that's going to be essential in terms of setting uh, a post-COVID approach. 
And then the last uh, category of hospitals is those hospitals who were in very, very strong shape financially going into the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic, they remain uh, still in very, very strong financial shape. And so they need to make some strategic decisions about what they're going to do with that financial advantage. And then the last point is just the whole notion that the industry probably needs to rework its costs, um, that COVID has probably done an awful lot of damage to the cost structure. Um, in some cases, it may have increased the cost structure because of how hard hospitals had to work to fight through the COVID process. And the assumption that coming out of COVID, we're going to have different economic conditions for hospitals uh, and trying to live with higher costs is going to be harder and harder. And so this is going to be a, a different kind of cost approach, I think, but it's the third critical tactic um, in order to get around this languishing problem. Ken, I find this just fascinating. You know, I think you and I both remember, and, it's, uh, and some of our audience remembers the, the Jimmy Carter malaise speech, and, and I think history he was not treated kindly at the time for making that speech, and history ultimately suggests that maybe he was on to something. I always thought that as more of a quit your bitching and moaning and get moving message to the country. But you're suggesting languishing as something else, which is a, just the kind of inertia and, and exhaustion and non-movement, which seems to me could be just catastrophic to a board uh, and to an organization. Who sends that message? Yeah, I think Carter got in trouble because he came across as disciplining the company, the country. And I think the I think the way that got interpreted was and the reason that it really wound up costing him the 1980 election was that that he was disciplining the country and commentators immediately said, you have no right to do this because the problem is of your own making. So you're blaming the American public for something that you're responsible for, not for the American, not the American public. So we we are in, in discussing this. We are not talking about that. We are not disciplining the American hospital over this issue. I think the, the point that was made is that languishing is a natural reaction to what we've been through over the last 16 months that that that, you know, to feel up and ready to go is, is, is not to be expected given, yeah. given the difficulties of the pandemic and given that, that the hospital industry had the worst of the pandemic. They got hit economically. They had to try to find PP&E. Then they had to try to, to treat all these patients. And then they had to put up with the federal and state government not really supporting them in, a, in, a, in an appropriate way. Then they had to put up with governors you know, not ordering lockdowns and not ordering masks. So more people got sick. And when more people got sick, those people didn't go to the state house to see the governor. They came to the hospitals to be taken care of. And then the vaccination process came and hospitals had to figure out the vaccination because a lot of states and localities couldn't figure it out to start with. And all of that is just going to beat down on the organization, beat down on the board, beat down on the management team. And you have every right to language. Uh, but at a certain point, as you said, um, that languishing, if you don't, if you can't get by it, 
is going to become a competitive disadvantage. And so, so that I think the boards and CEOs, yeah, they really need to have a very healthy and candid conversation right now. Hopefully many of the hospitals out there, uh, the boards and CEOs have the ability to have really honest and candid conversations that are not business conversations. They go beyond business conversations. And that will get the message across that, as, as to how each and every uh, hospital and health system now decides to move forward as, as opposed to treading water in place. Before we leave this, this fascinating issue, how do you recommend that, it, that, that the languishing question gets presented? Is it the board chair's responsibility? Should it be the CEO? Uh, should it be them together? Or does it matter who raises it as long as it is raised? Certainly, oh, not I don't, think, I don't think it matters who, ra- who raises it. And probably the culture of different organizations would suggest different, play, different individuals. I think it is the CEO's responsibility. But there's nothing wrong with the board chair or some other important member of the board raising it, you know, to have that conversation saying, you know, I don't think we're we're at the same aggressive level that we were pre-pandemic that we are now post-pandemic. And maybe we ought to have, you know, a serious conversation about about how to get the organization moving and what what the tactics and steps are in order to do that. Well, you know, picking up on that last point, tactics and trends and, and and being aggressive again, you and I were talking about two, two, three weeks ago in Washington, there was a whole week of congressional hearings uh, set aside for conversations regarding competition. And, and while some have related to the tech industry, there were lots of discussions for major healthcare officials and the whole question of competition and antitrust in major industries like healthcare. Uh, and the pendulums seem to be swinging, Ken, to much more aggressive antitrust enforcement, a far more precise European version of competition. And now we see states like New York uh, looking at their own state antitrust statutes. What is the threat uh, from your perspective on the industry a more aggressive, even a more aggressive approach to competition generally, not just in the M and A activity, but what we seem to be perceiving out of Washington right now. Yeah, this is a this is a serious matter. This is this is a serious matter, and this has been building for years uh, through Democratic and Republican administrations alike, and now it has a whole other different political focus, which is not hopeful for the hospital portion of the industry. Um, So, uh, you know, uh, basically we went through these these congressional hearings um, that were at the uh, urging of uh, Senator Klobuchar from Minnesota and Congresswoman Porter from California. Um, And the, the argument was for for much stronger FT enforcement of hospital consolidation. The old boogeyman was put out there that hospital consolidation just leads to higher prices and that the public is not well served about by this. But there was also this, you know, sort of assessment that the public is in generally not served by larger healthcare organizations uh, of scale that have been building from from normal economic processes over the last 10 to 15 years. It, it, it once again, and I know I'll sound like a broken record for people who have been listening to me about this, 
but it's really hard to figure out how a $300 billion organization is okay and doesn't threaten the public welfare, but a organization like that's $15 billion that provides hospital services is an entire threat, um, not only from a pricing and financial point of view, but from a philosophy point of view. The other accusation that was made, Michael, that was, and this was made ahead of the hearings and then was made again in a Saturday morning article in the New York Times, was that CARES Act money was used by some major healthcare providers in order to consolidate and make additional acquisitions. And this was a, an acquisition made without any factual support whatsoever. The only support that was made was the roundup of quotes from the usual economist suspects who, who tend to make and support those kinds of accusations in the media. But otherwise, there was no factual support for that accusation. And I'm here with you today to say that that accusation was scurrilous. There, there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever that any major healthcare organization used CARES Act money uh, in order to purchase uh, other hospital organizations that needed partners because of the financial damage that had occurred to them. And in fact, any of the organizations that were in a position um, to do that going forward already had a balance sheet that was completely sufficient without the CARES Act money to carry out any acquisitions that they thought were appropriate for, for their, their company. So this is, this is, I mean, I just hear about this every day. I just had another discussion today with, with, with somebody who's, who's very on top of things in Rhode Island. And, and we are seeing um, the FTC challenge uh, almost any kind of consolidation, no matter what the uh, possibility of public good uh, might that might come out of, of of some of these different transactions. Ken, what do you see? I mean, in terms of strategies that health systems can use to address this, not only obviously pushing back uh, through the representatives in Washington, does there need to be a plan B for growth that does not include uh, acquisitions? Uh, how do you see the, the near-term horizon in terms of uh, continuing the necessary growth and scale if the M&A activity is going to be challenged at every turn? Well, so you're, you're raising the inorganic, organic growth question, uh, of course, with acquisitions being inorganic growth part and, and then just normal growth being the organic growth part. And, you know, the problem is, is that you have certain areas of the country like Texas or Arizona or Nevada and, and Florida where organic growth is actually still possible. You have population increases, you have aging of the population, and there are many healthcare organizations that will grow simply because um, they have uh, higher use rates and they have more population to apply those use rates to. But there are other parts of the country where healthcare on the provider side is completely a, uh, a mature industry. There, there isn't going to be any particular organic growth now or any time in the future. Um, and in that regard, the economic conditions sort of traditionally demand inorganic growth. 
And if the FTC is going to oppose every transaction in that regard, it's not really clear five or 10 years from now what kind of health system you're going to have in those locales around the country. Do you have to then reevaluate the weight that you apply to uh, inorganic growth as part of you know your strategic plan? You you said at the beginning of our conversation you wisely counseled uh, reevaluating the strategic plan in light of the last eighteen months. Does that reevaluation include taking a second look at just simply the core feasibility uh, of growth through merger and how long it would take, if at all, to accomplish that? Absolutely. absolutely. I think for any organization, healthcare provider who considers themselves an important organization in America, that has that is an absolutely essential ongoing tactic of the board and, 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 and the CEO, is understanding that set of relationships and understanding uh, where that might go, what partnerships may be necessary and how possible those partnerships might be. Uh, you have to be constantly getting uh, you know, excellent uh, outside advice. You have to be getting excellent uh, antitrust legal advice at all times. And, and every organization should have legal trust counsel at this point. And it should be a legal trust counsel that they have a lot of confidence in. And then, you know, you have to, you know, what, what's become evident is you have to fight for this. And the amount, the cost of, of the fight is on the FT. The FTC uses that as a tactic. So if you do a deal and then the FTC opposes that deal and you have to take and then you challenge the FTC. So the first thing that happens is that challenge goes to district court and that's going to cost you X amount of dollars. And if you fail in district court and you decided to to go to appellate court, that's going to cost you Y amount of dollars. And as has been told to me by people who are very close to many hospitals around the country, uh, that, that, that quite a few places are intimidated by this FTC process and intimidated by the expense of fighting back. But the failure to fight back will become a self-fulfilling prophecy and will damage the industry significantly. So, you know, I think this is a fascinating point. Are you suggesting that there really needs to be a risk adjustment uh, on behalf of boards where they were, as you and I both know, understandably reluctant to take on battles before because of the time, the distraction and the enormous cost and, and, the, and the difficulty of retaining the cultural tie to your your prospective partner from litigation? I hear you saying, oh, you know, this because of what's at risk. Uh, the prudent step for boards is to be to be more open to the challenge, to be more understanding and be more willing to commit the time and money to fight the fight, because the, the failure to fight, it will be a self-fulfilling prophecy. There will be no attractive m opportunities available if you yield the field to the government. No, I, you said it very well. And that's and, and, and that's actually absolutely the case, I think. I mean. I mean, hospitals are sort of, you know, the American Hospital Association has really been fighting tooth and nail on this issue, but it's not enough to leave it just to the AHA. I mean, I mean, Rick Pollack and Mindy Atten from the AHA are doing doing yeoman's work in this area, but the membership at the at, at the local level, of local states has to has to do this. You've got to be talking to your congressmen. You've got to be talking to your senators. You have to constantly be telling them how offended you are by this. Um, you have to tell them that it's going to harm that this process and, and this attitude is going to harm the long-term 
uh, delivery of quality health care at the local level in a particular state or a particular geographic area. Um, and, and, and that, in you, your opinion, you know, the FTC does not fight fair. And you want the support of your congressman and you want the support of your senators because of the overwhelming economic contribution that the healthcare industry makes in every jurisdiction around the country. And that's the attitude that has to be taken here. Just sitting by and watching what happens, it's getting more and more difficult, you know, literally every month now. Self-help. Ken, you know, on the related point, we were as you're, you were just talking, obviously, that the, a number of uh, important transactions uh, failed to be consummated because of government challenge. But as, as you and I were chatting about recently, there seems to be an uptick based on media reports of other types of, of, of uh, what would appear to be attractive and sensical uh, M&A transactions between health systems not consummating for other reasons. In other words, reasons other than um, antitrust challenge that they're getting, they, they get to the, uh, the, the last mile and for some reason they fall apart. Is something going on there? How would you explain that phenomenon? Or if I, am I correct? No, I think you are correct. And, and, and I think it's an externality, internality issue. So there's, there's, two, there's two swimming lanes here, Michael, for, for getting these deals done. The first is taking care of all the business that relates to the two organizations trying to, to execute a partnership or a merger. And is all of that work doing, being done appropriately you know have you built the business case so that everybody understands why the transaction is being done or you know did you just decide to skip the business case and then and then you get back you get down the road three or four months and people start asking business case questions and you can't answer those questions because you didn't do the business case you know is everybody on board in terms of how this deal is going to get done you know the, the four most important people in getting these transactions done on a not-for-profit basis tend to be the two ceos and the two board chairs and you you really have to start out with with all four of those individuals coming to the conclusion they're on the same page because i think we find a lot that 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 in some cases you know the ceos are on the same page but 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 as the deal goes down, the chairman of the board are not on the same page or vice versa. The chairman of the board are on the same page, but the CEOs are not on the same page. And I think what we've generally seen is, is if there isn't close communication and close agreement among those four individuals, it's actually really tough to get these deals done. And I think what you've seen in some of these deals is that is that the wheels come off on one of those relationships. So every, you know, they sign the LOI and letter of intent, and then they announce the deal. And everybody says, this is great. And it looks like it's going. And, and then behind the scenes, you find out that, that, you know, one of the board chairs or somebody started getting influenced by, by other situations and, and then decides that, no, it's not such a great deal. And once that happens, it's almost in, impossible to go forward. So those are the internalities. The externalities are just how hard it is to do a transaction in today's America. I mean, everybody doesn't like something, right? And hospitals are just at the top of the list of what a lot of people don't like. And, and so, you know, I mean, you know, there's the, you know, the community gets involved and different parts of the community gets involved. The medical staff gets involved. 
And in many cases, there, there, there's parts of the medical staff that think they will be economically disadvantaged by the transaction. And if that's the case, they tend to weigh in and they tend to have a lot of influence and, and they tend to know how to throw that influence around. In other cases, it's, it's just different constituencies who, who, who don't think that the transaction will be good from their particular political perspective. And if they're powerful enough um, and they hold, you know, a mayoral position or seats on a city council or something like that, they can figure out a way to do a lot of damage. And, and as this, this goes on, it's like water torture to the transaction. And many transactions just can't stand up to that degree of ongoing criticism. And then the transaction dies because it's kind of a death of a thousand cuts. So these two things are all going on at the same time. And I think in the past, um, in some cases, in some of these transactions, it just hasn't been enough planning and consideration for how this is working in order to stand up to the trauma that the deal is going to face. So if hospitals want to succeed in this, if they think it's really, really important to their future, you know, we, we probably need to sit down and, and, and think a little bit more, a little harder and a little more creatively how we're going to get this from, from start to finish. One final question on this point, Ken. I think, you know, the seem to be the old adage over the last 10, 15 years of deal making that the, the concept was, let's keep it between the CEOs and the board chairs for the, for the time being. Let's, let's not expose just the full board. Um, we'll bring it to you, the full board, when it's a more complete thought. But for reasons of confidentiality and efficiency or whatever, uh, we'll keep it as a tight group. Uh, is, is part of the answer to this phenomenon you're describing exposing the proposed transaction earlier to the full board? Uh, is that part of the solution, uh, the greater transparency earlier on, or is that uh, not a factor? You know, Michael, honestly, there's there's really differing points of view in the, in the overall, you know, partnership community about that question. I think probably if you ask 20 experts on this, you would mostly get the answer that keeping the confidentiality is still the way to go. But, you know, in some places, it may be that that confidentiality strategy doesn't doesn't work that great anymore because you've got so much work to do with these externalities that I was talking about, that if you don't go public and figure out how to work those externalities, you'll you'll under no circumstances will you ever get the deal done. But there has been just a general framework, I think, over the last 30 to 40 years that you that you keep these these deals in on, under the covers as long as you possibly can. I know uh, a number of people who, who are very important deal doers around the country who, who think that one of the problems that we ha has occurred right now is that there's been a tendency to announce these deals to the public uh, at the signature of the letter of intent. And I've had a, a, a number of, 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 of important individuals suggest to me that, that that's a real mistake right now and that the deal shouldn't be announced at the letter of intent. You should continue working through the definitive agreement and not make any announcements until you've actually signed the definitive agreement. So it's a the technicalities of this are are, are really important, and 
and uh, you, you, you're you going to have the best luck if you think hard about this as opposed to, you know, just, you know, it's, it's clear that, that just trying to check the boxes doesn't get the deal done anymore. Well, you mentioned 20 different people, 20 different perspectives. That prompts me to ask one more question, one more topic before we let you go today. Since we had our last board dialogue with conversation with you, uh, it seems that the concept of ESG has to be the most frequently used phrase in all of business and legal communication. Everybody's talking about it all the time, kind of like the 2021 version of cybersecurity when it was just uh, drinking out of a water hose from this. But I understand that there's differing views in boardrooms as to whether ESG really applies to the nonprofit health system. What are you, what's your take? What are you seeing? Well, we're of the opinion, or maybe I should say I'm of the opinion that, that ESG applies to any major organization that's providing any major business service in America. And, and that you can't, I don't see how you can get around it or, or make an excuse for it or walk away from it or whatever. I mean, I mean, the, the issues of, uh, of, of racial equity, the issues brought forward by the murder of George Floyd, the issues of changing climate conditions. There's no organization in the country of any importance that's going to skirt these things. You're going to be called to take them on. You're going to be called to task on these issues. You're going to be called to task from external uh, community uh, uh, individuals, but you're going to be called the task from people inside your organization. Yes. I mean, you're going to hear from your employees. You're going, you're going to hear from your suppliers. You're going, I mean, this is, I mean, you know, law firms and consulting firms already know that when, I mean, this is, you know, if you want to reverse it, that when clients call and say, we might be considering hiring your firm, uh, but before we consider that, tell us what you're doing um, on diversity and equity issues. And if you're not doing enough for what we think you should be doing, then then we have a policy that we won't use you. We'll use somebody else who's doing better on it. And so I don't see any reason why Hospitals of America shouldn't expect to hear that from, from all of their constituencies. And their constituents, of course, you know, not only include community and their board, and their employees, but but also state and local governments and 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 other other political constituencies, other media. Um, there's nobody who can escape this right now. Well, closing the circle on today's conversation, going back to your languishing point, uh, are not-for-profit health systems languishing on the question of ESG? Are we be, are, are they behind on this issue? And if so, what do they have to do to get ahead? I don't think they're behind. I, I think they're in about the same place that everybody else is. And I think it's a one-off question. I mean, I think you could certainly, you know, call up, you know, 50 healthcare organizations that you know very well and, and ask them, you know, some very important diversity questions. And, and, and in some cases you would say, wow, those people are, that they're taking this completely seriously and they're doing a really good job and they should be proud of what you're doing. And on the other hand, you could get answers that would say, well, that seemed like a little whitewashing to me. And I don't, I don't think that, 
that, that that probably is going to be sufficient for what they're doing. So, so different organizations are in different places. It depends where they started from. Um, and it depends how seriously the board and senior management are taking, taking the whole social change and social justice issue in America. It seems to me that even though we both know that health systems have a long agenda this summer as their boards come back for their first in-person meeting, you've just added four additional issues that need to be on that agenda. Uh, the question of languishing, the question of the uh, government involvement and in competition, the phenomena about why deals aren't closing and the importance of addressing these social purposes issues. Those have to be really, Ken, don't they, at the top of the agenda? They can't wait until the autumn or December meetings. Boards have to be addressing those right now this summer. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is this is just part of the revised agenda. You and I, you know, we talk a lot and getting ready for these these podcasts and just in general, we talk a lot. And, you know, Michael, you and I have talked about this endlessly um, in, in many of the conversations that we have, both getting ready for the podcast and just in general talking about boards in the industry. And uh, the agenda has never been fuller for not-for-profit healthcare boards. It, the agenda is, is, it's large and it, it's complicated and, um, and it requires a level of conversation that you, that I think both you and I would agree doesn't always happen in all boardrooms. I mean, some hospitals like a formality in their process that doesn't really seem sufficient or appropriate for the kinds of issues that we're facing right now. I mean, how do you have a formal conversation about, about what kind of position and how aggressive you're going to be on social justice? It just doesn't render itself to the normal, okay, now we're on agenda item number three, social justice. I mean, you, you, <laughs> you, can't, you can't talk about it. it it's, it's impossible and, it's, inappro and it, it, it's, it's, it's inappropriate in so many ways. But it will be very interesting, as you know, to watch some CEOs and board chairs try to work around this. And, and, and you know, some, some board chairs will say we need to keep the emotion out of this. And some board chairs will say, no, we need all the emotion in this. So. Um, you know, fascinating times ahead. Revised board agenda in initial caps in bold. Thank you, Ken Kaufman, as always. We just appreciate your viewpoints. And I think now uh, the fascinating comments you've made more than ever. So, Michael, now we come to my favorite time of the of the Michael and Ken podcast is when I get to ask you a question. Um, and my question today is, is that you referenced the word frustration in your opening remarks. Um, what, do you, what are the issues that you see that are frustrating boards uh, as opposed to challenging them? Because the, the, the different, there is a very significant psychological difference between the word frustrating and the word challenging. Well, you know, and I think it's a perfect follow-on question, Ken, to your conversation. And, and, I, and, and I'll go back and quote Tom Hanks, who said in, in I think, one of his movies that uh, it, ultimately it's all about the Godfather. And by that, I mean that there was the, the, uh, the famous lament of Michael Corleone, uh, where he was distraught about being able to make his move to legitimate business Every time I try to get out, they always pull me back in. 
And the sense that I'm seeing is that uh, that boards that are earnestly trying to move forward and put the last 18 months behind them and initiate growth initiatives that they plan for for so long are finding that that path forward is strewn with boulders and uh, potholes and lingering concerns about public health relating to the after effects of coronavirus, the workforce safety issues about coming back to work and now gun violence in the workplace, um, additional new fiduciary responsibilities. You were mentioning ESG. Now the you know NACD has come in and said you've got a responsibility to manage climate risk. Um, the whole job participation issue, and then the one that's looming out there, and that's the, the issue of inflation. And they see all this arising or kind of hanging over or coming out of the pandemic environment, and they're saying, all we want to do is move the institution forward, and every time we try to do so, this pandemic stuff just kind of pulls us back in. And I think directors feel that frustration uh, as just as much as executives and like you were saying, Ken, on addressing the languishing issue up front, directors, I think, can play a real role and arm around the shoulder with executives. We feel your pain. We get it. We understand it. Let us be your partner in working through solutions so we can clear some of the potholes, uh, uh, clear some of the boulders, uh, and clear that path towards business resiliency. But I do sense, I don't know about you, I, I do sense frustrations. Like, this stuff never goes away, does it? So, Ken, we thank you so much for your input. We thank our, our loyal listeners for our, their uh, continuing to join us for these wonderful board dialogues with Ken, and we will see you again in July. Ken, thanks again so much. Thank you, Michael. As he always does, Ken Kaufman has provided us with an exceptional perspective on emerging governance challenges facing hospital and health system boards. Ken's thoughts on the risks of languishing, as he calls it, in the near-term window of business resiliency are especially noteworthy, as are his thoughts on more aggressive government antitrust enforcement, merger negotiation strategy, and corporate social responsibility. We're always very grateful for the chance to visit with him. Thanks so much for joining us for today's episode of Board Dialogue with Ken Kaufman. Be sure to subscribe to the full complimentary podcast series. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube, as well as through the McDermott website. There you'll be able to stay up to date with all our future episodes and re-listen to the old ones. For even more podcasts on healthcare at law and business from McDermott, subscribe to the McDermott Health Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Amazon, and wherever else you listen to your podcasts. Like, subscribe, and leave us a review so that we can continue bringing you the insider insights on business and legal developments that impact the business of healthcare. Until then, this is your host, Michael Peregrine, saying thanks for listening. This material is for general information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific facts or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott Will & Emery makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. McDermott and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liability to any person in respect of consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2021 McDermott Will & Emery.
All rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, or republication, without the prior written consent of McDermott is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.